Hey everybody, I'm David Hurley and welcome to the Hurley Burley. Or welcome back to the Hurley Burley if you've been here before and generously decided we didn't screw it up too much. We like to think of the Hurley Burley as a commotion, yes a commotion, of politics, culture, sports and music. Today we're talking politics and specifically the challenges faced by women in politics with Dr. Kate Graham. Kate holds a Doctor of Philosophy and Political Science from the University of Western Ontario. She teaches there, plus she researches, writes, and speaks on politics and public policy in Canada. She ran as a Liberal candidate in the 2018 provincial election in London, Ontario, and she recently launched her own podcast called No Second Chances for Canada 2020, which tells the stories of Canada's 12 female first ministers and the gender inequality issues they faced while in office and throughout their careers. Kate, welcome to the Hurley Burley. Thanks for having me on, David. Excited about this. It's it's great. It's great to have you here. Now, I uh, as as uh, we worked together on the 2018 campaign, so I've got to start there with okay. you. I remember when Deb Matthews told me that she had this fabulous candidate <laughs> lined up to replace her in her riding of London, um, and that candidate was you. How did she find? How did you become the, a candidate yourself? I just had a, a woman on the podcast named Amanda Lippman, who runs a program in the states trying to encourage young people to young progressive people run for something to run for something. Yes, yeah, yeah cool. Yeah, so I've I've known Deb for probably ten years, as almost every Londoner does. She's a you know, very well-known, very well-respected uh, figure in the community. So I, I spent the first 10 years of my career working in local government. I was a director at the City of London, and one of the parts of my uh, job was government relations. So we would work with Deb on basically any priority of the city, you know, high-speed rail, rapid transit, uh, supervised consumption, uh, and on and on it goes. And so I became uh, pretty close with Deb, and uh, she let me know that she was uh, thinking about stepping down. And I uh, made that announcement, and of course, it opened up a seat. And she, she's someone who had encouraged me, kind of in in vague terms, to think about running at some point. And uh, and then when when she decided she wasn't running anymore, she encouraged me to step forward. And to be honest, it was uh, a lot about you know we, we'll talk about this, but uh, a lot of women their career in politics starts with someone asking. For me, that was certainly true. And uh, but it was also about all of the initiatives that we've been working on. You know, to spend so much time and energy on you know high speed rail and rapid transit and wanting to see those things come to fruition. So uh, I quit my job at the city and decided I would run for office and start uh, teaching. Uh, if that didn't work out, which you know here we are. Uh, it turned out to be, uh, you know, a really positive experience in all kinds of ways. When she approached you with it, were you an enthusiastic candidate or a reluctant candidate? Did you have to be talked into it? Uh, it yes. Yeah, so it was a no for the first couple of conversations, as I think it is for for a lot of people, and particularly for women. You know, I. I worked as a public servant, so it's really important to stay uh, nonpartisan. And to me, that was kind of a line you can only walk over once, you know, mm. to, to become an official liberal candidate, for example. I didn't think I could go back into my job and be working with whoever the government of the day might be to the same way that I could. So I knew it was a, uh, it was a big ask because it meant I was quitting a job that I quite liked, you know, with a pension and staff and all. all I had, I had a wonderful, uh, a really wonderful job, but, uh, the stakes were really high in this case, and those issues mattered enough to me that I thought, you know what, uh, we talk a lot, we talk a big game about wanting women to step forward, and if you believe in something, like how far are you willing to go? And uh, you know, when it came to issues around my community, I was like, I, I have to do this. I I can't, in good conscience, keep telling other people that they should run for office if I'm not willing to step up myself. Right. Campaigns are pretty all-consuming, especially when you're losing as badly as we were. Uh, <laughs> so. They're probably all-consuming when you're winning, Kevin. I wouldn't know. But <laughs> what were the things in your life that you had to give up to run? 
So it it was a very dramatic change in terms of the kind of rhythm and pattern of my life. From for uh, several months before election day, I was spending hours and hours every day knocking on doors. Towards the end, it was eight to twelve hours a day, and uh, and I I will say I actually feel like I became a bit addicted to it. I really really enjoyed um, the opportunity to just go, and every single door was like a brand new political conversation. You knock, you have no idea who's behind the door, what they want to talk about, and I really loved it. I I felt like you know I'm I've studied politics for a long time, I've worked around politics. It was an education in politics and also in my own community that I have never experienced before. So it was very different. You know, instead of showing up to work every day and having a day full of meetings, it was uh, me and a group of volunteers, and we would pick a neighborhood and we would go and talk to as many people as we possibly could and try to get a sense of what was on people's minds. And uh, yeah, I, I learned so much about uh, about London. I learned a lot about how people think about leaders, which we'll get there in terms of this project, how people think about politics generally. So yeah, overall, really great experience. So remind me of what's great. You worked your tail off and you lost, <laughs> right? So people always tell me this after they run that it was a great experience, even if they've lost. What's great about it? So, you know, politics is a long game, right? And for me, um, particularly when the polls were, you know, it was clear that we were not headed towards, you know, a big victory or so on. So, Did you still think you were going to win long after the polls showed that we were in trouble provincially? I think the candidate for, and it, it may not be a totally rational thing, uh, it became clear very early on that, you know, the candidate has to believe in this and uh, on, you know, Meetings with volunteers, for example, if I wasn't really feeling it that day, we knocked on fewer doors. The response wasn't as positive. Like the candidate really has to believe. So whether it's a rational thing or knowing that it was important that I still believe that we could win. Uh, so yes, right up to the end, absolutely. I believe that we should be giving it a thousand percent and that we could, we at least had a chance. But, um, the question was kind of what was good what about was positive this. About it, yeah. yeah. So I, for me, again, because because uh, we knew where things were headed to an extent provincially, you know, it became less about the race and more about the experience. So almost every day, we would have a conversation that would just knock your socks off. You know, someone who was voting for the very first time, and they had researched the candidates and they'd watched the debate, and they would either say they're voting for me or voting for someone else. But the fact that they, you know, had moved to a new place and cared enough about it to really understand the issues. It's incredibly inspiring and it's really humbling actually to be a part of a process like that where, I mean, ultimately politics is a, it's about where people come together to make decisions that affect them, right? Yeah. And so you yeah. see that every day with volunteers who show up, with donors, with people who stand on their doorstep, even though they've got, you know, uh, dinners in the oven and they're still willing to stand there and talk about education or healthcare or an idea that they have for the province. It's incredibly inspiring. So, you know, win or lose, uh, for me, it was, as I said, a, a real departure in terms of my own understanding of politics in my community and one that I'm really grateful that I had the chance to do. And I mean, I think you could talk to a lot of people in all ridings, volunteers, candidates, they would have the same, the same reflections. So you were asked by the Liberal Party after the election to do a postmortem to talk to people around the province? Uh, I wasn't actually asked. It was more, uh, I, yeah, I, I don't even, the party, yeah, I, I let the party know I was planning to do this, but I um, I felt like I had learned a lot uh, about, you know, politics generally, but also about what people weren't happy with about the Liberal Party. And so I contacted a few people I'd become close with, other first-time candidates primarily, and asked if they'd be willing to document in some 
you know, systematic way, what we learned during the campaign about where the party needed to go. And so there was a team of about 17 candidates, and we contacted all of the other candidates and asked if they'd participate in an interview. And then we recorded those and put together a report. We called it the Listening Project. And it was about, you know, listening to candidates about their experience, but more broadly listening to what candidates heard from Ontarians about this election and about the party and about where we should be going from this point on. So what did you conclude? Uh, the, well, there's a there's a report on this. The, the overwhelming. I'm the campaign uh, manager, right? <laughs> Tell me, what did you conclude yes. about how the campaign went? Sorry, I'm, I'm going to go into politics mode, not academic mode. Yeah. <laughs> well, there were 17 findings, and <laughs> uh, the big pitch, the sort of punchline, was a lot of people felt like the party had stopped listening, and that meant a couple different things depending on where you were. So in parts of the province outside of Toronto. Uh, I think people felt like the party uh, had become a bit Toronto-focused and even the way that, you know, hydro or other policy issues were being talked about, it didn't reflect their own context to the extent that they would like. And then I think sometimes, and this is, I think, true of any government that's been in power for a point in time. You know, a new candidate sometimes has uh, naive ideas that by signing up you have some ability to influence the party uh, policy. And of course, that's not uh, necessarily true. And so uh, candidates, I think, also felt like there wasn't enough opportunity to be heard. So generally speaking, I think a desire to see the party listening more. Uh, and do they the, think that would have materially affected the outcome had those things happened? Or it just would have been a better process? Uh, yeah, not, I mean, I think generally having a better understanding of what Ontarians were looking for, uh, you know, is always a good political strategy. And I'm not saying that we didn't do that. Uh, you know, I th- we can get into this. I think there are all kinds of forces really running against uh, the party, and in this case, particularly the leader, right. that we had absolutely no control over and that actually are kind of on us. They're bigger reflections about uh, Canadian politics and about us as Canadians. But, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, having a party that is really actively you know, sort of aggressively interested almost in understanding what voters are thinking, what people who would never vote liberal are thinking, what candidates are thinking, more opportunities to hear from people. I think it's always a good thing. Did you get the sense that people thought that our policies were off base? That's the funny thing. So, I mean, there were certainly a few things that came up a lot uh, during at the door, uh, you know, hydro, for example, or healthcare. Uh, but, you know, within, if someone would invest even two to three minutes at the door to really understand some of those decisions, the anger went away very, very quickly. Because those are not, those are not simple issues, right? They're complicated. Uh, if you explain, you know, here were the kind of major decision points, here's what was driving those. And you'd ask someone, you know, would you have liked to see a different decision made at any point along the way? Often the answer was no. But people had this sort of just emotional gut level anger at a few things. And there were other parties campaigning saying, you know, vote for us and we're going to fix it. You know, we'll fix hallway healthcare and everything's going to be great. Of course, that's not true, but it makes for a great campaign strategy. So I I think the deeper of a conversation that we could get into, the more likely people were to understand. But, but outside of those issues that people were really mad at, generally speaking, I think people were really happy. You know, the economy is doing well. We had lots of, you know, job creation numbers were really good. Uh, we could go on and on about, you know, kind of environmental initiatives. Uh, education was doing well. Lots of things that were very positive. So I don't think this election was actually about policies at the end of the day. So uh, one of the things we uh, consistently debated inside the Liberal Caucus about communications was um, the economy. And you've mentioned the strength of the economy, the lowest unemployment rate in 17 or 18 years. And all across the province, communities had low unemployment rates. People would not accept those statistics from us. 
People did not believe them. People did not accept those as an accurate description of the economy. From your door knocking, what was going on that the economic statistics didn't reflect how people felt about the economy? Mm-hmm. Well, I think so. I think if we were to break it down to more of like a family unit level, we know that people are more indebted today than ever before. So this is not about big, I think most people, if they've thought for even a few minutes about it, know that the economy in Ontario is doing pretty well. But in terms of their own personal household, I think they're worried about money. Certainly in London and Southwestern Ontario, we've seen uh, lots of job losses, a big transformation in terms of the you know sectors of the economy and so on, very tied to what's happening in the States. And so people don't feel very secure in their own personal uh, financial situation. And I think that makes them worried about anything that has to do with money or the economy, which are big, complicated topics that I don't know that most people could, uh, you know, articulate the direct connection between even their own lives and what was happening across Ontario's economy. But they do know about their own family household budget. And, you know, the, the Conservatives ran on very much a kind of pocketbook platform. And that seemed to really resonate with a lot of people. And I think it was about that underlying worry about their own personal financial situation. Right. So now we didn't just lose, we lost to Doug Ford. So I presume that, you know, if you run in an election and you lose to Sir Wilfrid Laurier, you can say, well, you know, <laughs> we tried, but we lost at least to Sir Wilfrid Laurier and he's going to be a great prime minister and all this stuff. We lost to Doug Ford, who is an abomination. How do you feel about the Ford government? What's your take on the Ford government? Well, I, I think, you know, he he ran without a platform, but he ran on a couple of issues that were you can explain in three seconds and that appeal to that sensibility of the pocketbook, you know, buck a beer and cheaper gas, both of which are total fallacies. And again, for anyone who has thought for five seconds about how gas pricing works, knows that, that you know, there's just there's no logic behind that. But the message resonated, and I also think that he uh, he benefited from uh, this sort of built-up anger that comes with any government that has been in power for any length of time. You know, there are decisions people don't like, and those things tend to accumulate. And then I don't think having uh, a female and the first openly gay premier in Canada at the helm, I don't think that is an irrelevant detail to this story. Um, I'm not saying that it's because of that, but I think there were certain criticisms that stuck more than they would have if there was a man in charge. And that's, you know, I know that we'll get there, but I I think gender is absolutely a part of this story. Not the whole story, but a part of the story. So where do you you come from? Let's talk about you for a second, just to get a sense of who you are. Before you're a candidate, we jump right into (laughs) that. You, did you? Were you born in London? You from London? Uh, I was born in Exeter, so it's a small town in southwest Ontario, about half an hour outside London. I believe my friend Leslie Swartman is from Exeter. Leslie, if you're listening, I've got okay. somebody else from Exeter on the phone. <laughs> well, there's not many of us, so yeah. we probably cross paths at some point. <laughs> yeah, my parents were both uh, teachers, so they are actually. My dad was a principal. My mom was a teacher at the school that I went to, which is uh, its own. Happened to me too. My mom was my English teacher. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, it's not a recipe for popularity in the school. <laughs> no. <it's not. laughs> But it does keep you on the straight and narrow. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then we moved to London when I was in high school, and I went to university there, and I've lived there ever since. Political house? Not really, no. My my parents, uh, you know, they were very community-minded, like very active volunteers. My my dad started an organization for uh, teenage girls who needed There's They were very involved in the community. and uh, But they also really encouraged uh, 
us to voice our political opinions. I can remember having multiple lawn signs at points uh, on our front lawn, which kind of communicated to us that it was okay to have uh, strong opinions, have different opinions, even within the family. But if you so, had lawn signs, by definition, you're a political house. Most people well, don't teachers. have a lawn sign. They're teachers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so they certainly were not without political opinions, but no, yeah. never formally involved in, I think I'm the first person in my family who's kind of stepped forward to be more formally involved in a political process. Right. So you've been involved in local politics, you've studied local politics, you teach local politics, then you ran provincially. Mm-hmm. When you look across the whole spectrum from local to international, what is it that is interesting you right now? What is motivating you about politics right now? What kind of issues, what kind of ideas, what kind of things are making you think politics is important? So I I feel um, perplexed, I think would be the word, with some of these big shifts that we see happening in terms of people's orientation towards government and public institutions. And we could talk about Trump, we could talk about Brexit, we could talk about, you know, the rise of populism, some of these smaller movements that seem to be picking up surprising levels of steam. Uh, I think by and large, we are in a time where people no longer believe that government necessarily has their back. And uh, even though, you know, they may participate in democratic processes and they see themselves as having some say, I don't think they actually feel like they've got a lot of agency. I think they feel like government is doing things to them. And I think that a lot of people feel like they have kind of lost their power. You know, democracy is supposed to be about this shared power, right? People having influence. And I right. I don't think people feel that way anymore. So I think Part of it's globalization though, right? I mean, it is literally true that the governments we elect in Canada are not really the most important governments impacting on us. Right. And and the way people can participate in in politics now, you know, you can anybody on Twitter if you can if you're good at it, you can have a huge audience in a way that historically was never possible outside of participating in more formal processes or traditional media. So the way people participate in politics is different. Their orientation towards government is different. And I think uh, we need to be thinking long and hard about how we rebuild people's faith in this idea that uh, community matters, that democracy matters, that coming together as citizens to make things happen is a real possibility to solve big problems. We are not shy on problems, right? We've, you know, climate change, you know, growing economic inequality, we could go on and on. There are a lot of big issues. And if people don't feel like they have the ability to do something about them, I think we're going to see more revolting against the structures that are supposed to be fixing those problems. So I think the big task right now and what, to your question, what is motivating me is I think we need to reconnect with people where they are and remind them that, you know, problems only get solved when people come together to solve them. You know, that is what our system is built on. And so people need to be reminded that they have power, they have a voice. And if the world's not working for them, they need to do something about it. And politics is supposed to be a way they can do something about it. Can social media be used to bring us together that way and to create that sort of sense of being in touch? Or is it purely a divisive medium? Because right now it's largely divisive. Yeah, I I feel like there is a lot of power in social media. But oh my goodness, it is a destructive, dark place. I, um, Yeah, I... I think so. It depends on the platform. Like you, you know, Twitter, for example, seems to be particularly negative. And oh my goodness, you could look at you know almost any tweet of any female leader and look at the comments afterwards, and you start to lose a little bit of faith in humanity. But there are also really positive stories where we know about things going on around the world. We hear citizens speaking in their own voice, you know, spanning time and space in ways that we never have before. So, yeah, I think it's a powerful tool, but one that we need to. Uh, it's also revealing some really dark parts of our humanity that we need to come to grips with too. Right. Okay. Um, 
one last sort of question about your background. What are your political heroes? Who are your political heroes? Who do you who have you thought of over the years that you admire in politics? So my very first job uh, in in politics was when I was uh, I was actually planning on becoming a teacher like my parents. I was an art student at university. And I needed uh, money, I needed to pay tuition, so I took a job working for one city councillor in London named Joni Beckler, and then ended up being hired by two other city councillors, three three women. And I had no interest in politics before this point, and they... It, it was. It ended up being a really life changing job for me because the way they did politics, you know, it wasn't about you know they were all elected, but they essentially did the kind of things we think of as being campaign activities. They spent all of their time and energy out talking to people in their communities and in a smaller ward, you know, it's more possible to do that. But so working for them, I spent uh, all of my time just sitting and listening to people's concerns. I spent my time, um, you know, if someone had something that they were upset about, trying to figure out how they could play a role in fixing that. Joni Beckler, uh, she'd be my, you know, one of my political heroes. She ended up becoming London's mayor and a really positive form of politics where she reminded people that they have the power to do things about the world around the kind of comments I just made. She really believed that and she really lived it. And working for her for a number of years, it uh, it was really inspiring to me uh, to see what a political leader can do when they can remind people of the power that they have. Really? That's interesting. All right, let's talk about your project. Okay. Um, it is called No Second Chances. It's mm-hmm. a pretty dramatic title. <laughs> Can you tell my listeners what this project's about? Sure. So uh, after the election, as we've just spoken about, I, uh, you know, I, 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 as I've said, it's, it was a positive experience, but I also heard a lot of things that really deeply bothered me, uh, particularly about Kathleen Wynne. And, uh, you know, I would hear, I would, I would stand at a lot of doors. This, this happened over and over and over again. So what if I could just stop you? Yeah. Presumably following the Hillary Clinton campaign, you were aware of, what women face in uh, public life. Yes. So it was the visceralness of confronting this directly at the door that really made an impression on you or It was more so so the conversations at the door would go like this. They would say, you know, you seem great, but I really I can't support your leader. And I would say, okay, look, what is it? And, you know, this is sort of classic researcher style. You just sort of wait soundly and an answer will come. They didn't and they have had an a answer. really hard time putting their finger on it. And if I'd keep First waiting, of all, they were surprised by the question. They never got the question because it was such conventional wisdom that to say, oh, I don't like Kathleen Wynne, nobody would challenge you on that. No, and even right. I would, I went up to every, uh, I know this is, uh, as the as a campaign strategist, you're not going to like hearing me say this, but I would go to every door that had an unplug win sign, for example, uh, or any kind of evidence that they were like really angry. I, I loved those doors. And I would go up and ask them, like, well, what is it? You shouldn't have done what you wanted to. You should have done exactly what I said <laughs> you should do, and everything would have worked out fantastically. <laughs> yeah, we found the problem. There we go. Sorry, Ontario. <laughs> no, but uh, so the after you know after a little bit of a pause they would they would really struggle to respond and then they would say something along the lines of you know it's just it's just like she's not a leader or i just don't like her face or you know the sound of her voice things like that and uh, after the campaign you know i uh, this is sort of my academic background i think i started looking into you know this can't be the way that people evaluate leaders in 2019 even though you know hillary and so on we know that this is true but you know, these were people who seemed really reasonable. They've, you know, recycling bins out and the lawns cut and they seem like reasonable, intelligent people. And yet, although we wouldn't call it this, I think 
underlying a lot of the opinions people had about these, this election, there was a degree of sexism and homophobia there. And again, it's not the only reason. It's not the only reason they cast their ballot the way they did, but I think it was there. And, uh, and so, you know, it doesn't take long looking into the experiences of other women who have served in this role. You know, we've had 300 first ministers in Canada. Only 12 have been women, which is a uh, I think, you know, 4% seems shockingly low in a country that prides itself on being, you know, a place of equality and so on. Right. Uh, the women have only served for half the length of time that men do, so they don't last as long in the role. They tend to only come in in really tough circumstances. And the fall from, you know, often when the first woman is elected, there's a lot of fanfare and excitement and, you know, oh, great, something is going to change. They see them as being kind of an icon of change. And then uh, when that doesn't happen, you know, the fall from, being really popular to, you know, least popular premier in Canada, which was a headline that a lot of them have written about them, uh, it comes pretty quick. And so the project's about no second chances. Uh, it started out being because we've never re-elected a female first minister in Canada, but it's become uh, more now a, a general sense of uh, the Remarkable lack of- stuff. Can you just repeat that? So we've had 12 first ministers, premiers or prime ministers who were women. Yes, and some of them have won an election the first time. Yes, yeah. so similar to Kathleen Wynne, where you know right. you become the leader through a party process, you become the premier in some cases, go for a general election and win, right. and often lots of fanfare, and run for a re-election. We've never had a woman successfully come through that. The small caveat would be Christy Clark, who... Actually, kind. theoretically won, but was won more seats than anybody else. Well, and in her first election, uh, the party won, but she actually lost her own seat. And then the second election, she won, the party kind of won, but yeah. So yeah. She'd, she'd be kind of this. the She would footnote. be angry if we did not acknowledge that there's some argument that she won the election. So yes. let's give Christy that. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yes. But in terms of being reelected and serving a second mandate, we've never seen a woman uh, be able to do that in Canada. Right. And, uh, and I think, you know, that is on us. I think that tells us a lot about uh, us as Canadians and our political culture. And so that's what this project is all about. So over the last couple of months, I have spent um, yeah a fair bit of time traveling ac- across Canada and sitting in the living rooms or the kitchens of all of these women. We have had four and five hour length conversations about their political careers. And then I've talked to people around them, including sometimes uh, family members, media perspectives and others, to really understand uh, their stories and to see if there are some deeper similarities that seem to span the experience of all women in our most senior roles. And what are you learning? So it, it's been <laughs> uh, all kinds of things. And that's what the, the podcast series, No Second Chances, is all about is sharing that. But uh, it, there's a bit of deja vu, to be honest, uh, in sitting and hearing what their experiences are like. And these women span all political parties. They span the whole country. Uh, they span about three decades uh, in terms of the evolution of politics. But for a lot of them, it, they have a very similar story to tell about you know coming into power and, you know, the kind of excitement and enthusiasm and often breaking through, other than in two cases, they were the first woman to ever occupy that role. Uh, and first of all, how incredibly tough it is. You wear the weight of the expectation that you are somehow going to change an institution that people, you know, may or may not be happy with. And it's incredibly tough to do that. And uh, when women then are in a position where they, you know, as all first ministers are, have to make a tough decision, uh, that has a really dramatic uh, likability impact for them. So Christy Clark uh, said it best. She talked about, you know, we live in a society where for men, you can be tough and you can be likable. 
those two things can go together just fine. For women, it's a spectrum. And the closer you get to tough, the further you get from likable. And so they tell uh, stories about, you know, we really focus in on the project on what was the moment when you felt like things started to fall apart and what was happening with sometimes a staff team, sometimes a party caucus, the polling, general relations with uh, the public, you know, what happened and what did that look like? And, uh, and I, I think for me, uh, one of the things that's coming through in this project is the stories of where things started to fall apart are kind of unspectacular. You know, they're sort of run of the mill things you hear about all the time in politics. It's not unusual for political leaders to have to make tough decisions and decisions that, you know, people have lots of different opinions on. It's the way that we react and how, uh, Kathleen described it as, you know, it doesn't wear well on women. And so it's, it's, it sticks to women in a way that it doesn't with men. So men can get pretty unpopular too in politics. True. Right. Yes. And they so. always blame it on tough decisions that they had to make that people didn't wear well. But I mean, you know, Brian Mulroney got out of town just as the getting was good with some pretty horrible <laughs> uh, uh, popularity ratings. Dalton McGinty was pretty much choppered out of. Uh, out of Queens Park, like it was Saigon '75. So, <laughs> what, what, what is, what is the difference? Well, I think part of the challenge is the timing. So we talk about you probably heard the term the glass cliff. So uh, women tend to only reach the top in moments where the chances of failure are highest. So, you know, I, I did the interview with Kim Campbell this weekend, and she talked about you know after the Brian Mulroney years, you know, it's the first moment where a woman was able to take on that leadership role. And of course, you know, we could argue about this, but. I don't know that they were ever going to win that election, right? And so uh, she described uh, Although herself. Although she was ahead in the polls for a period of time. At the beginning, yes. Yeah, there was, you know, there's, again, a lot of fanfare. We see a woman in the role. She described it herself as being kind of a Hail Mary pass where people needed to see that the party was doing something different. And so, okay, Absolutely. let's put a woman in there. Great. Uh, but it, it is not enough to carry it. And, uh, you know, in her case, uh, you know, it was a pretty dramatic loss, as it has been for many of these women. And so as Canadians, when we only see women leading in times when they're losing, I think it also really conditions our own perceptions of women as leaders in a, you know, a way that I don't uh, pretend to fully understand, but a way that I think is really problematic. So women, uh, all of these women have come in at really tough circumstances. Christy Clark described in her interview as it was a suicide mission. Nobody good wanted it was her words. And so that was why she stepped up to run She was the only person who could have won it, actually. Mm -hmm. um, the only person that could have won that first election for them. Mm -hmm. um, so what is it? Um, like, it's one thing to sit back and say, okay, so, you know, men are bad people and they have no appreciation <laughs> of the good qualities of women in leadership and, uh, and they, you know, uh, reject them easily. What about female voters? Uh, because, you know, there's a lot of women who voted for Trump. There's a lot of women who voted for Ford. There's a lot of women who felt the same way about Kathleen Wynne as the guys we're talking about. So where does that come from? So to be really clear, I do not think this is a problem of men. And I actually don't think that this is, you know, men are bad and need to, you know, we need to give some kind of like you know, extra forgiveness to women because they're women. That is not at all what I'm arguing. I think very early on in life, we are socialized to believe that men and women play certain roles, right? And this comes from entertainment media, from our own family dynamics and so on. Men and women, we 
we hold different expectations for them. So for both men and women in politics, you know, we want them to be great leaders. We want them to be accomplished professionals and so on. But then we have other expectations of women that we don't have for men. And I think this is true of both men and women. You know, we have expectations about how women look. We have expectations of women as uh, partners. We have expectations of women as mothers. You know, if you look at Alison Redford's uh, story, for example, you know, she... The way, you know, having her child come with her on uh, a plane when she was going out and doing provincial business, uh, you know, when we see Trudeau get off a plane with his kids, it's like, oh, what a great dad. That same credit is not afforded to women. There were media comments about it being, you know, province provided babysitting and kind of judgments on her as a parent. I think uh, both men and women tend to judge women more harshly on grounds like appearance, like family status, and a number of other things in a way that we just don't really even think about as men. And that's the that's the underlying problem here. I think most people, you know, and we know men well, and women... Well, nobody's commenting on Ford's appearance, for example. Uh, this was, right, and I would argue that uh, <laughs> Doug Ford is a worse-looking man than Kathleen Wynne is a woman, for sure. I actually... So, in a few cases when someone would say, you know, it's, it's just her face, or they'd make mm-hmm. a comment, and I would say... And you like Doug Ford's face? Yeah. And they would sort of laugh for a minute. And then I think there's a bit of a realization of like, that's kind of a crazy way to pick a political leader in the first place. <laughs> but for some reason, we feel that. And, mm-hmm. you know, most people, I don't think our, you know, overt sexism, fortunately, I think is becoming more and more rare, which is a good thing. But it's really hard to shake some of these expectations that we have of men and women that are baked in really early from very early influences, even as children. It's going to take a long time for us to be able to shake those things. So when we see women in roles that don't line up with our stereotypical image of what a woman should be, what kinds of things a woman should be spending her time on, what a woman should look like, uh, we judge them in a way that it's often hard to put our own finger on. And I think, again, that's, that is the deeper issue here is those kind of underlying, ultimately sexist uh, difference in expectations. It's not obvious what one does about that. Indeed, it's not. It's if this was a quick thing to fix, we would have fixed it a long time ago. You know, patriarchy is deep and worldwide. It's not going anywhere anytime soon. But I think acknowledging it is really important, particularly when it's having such a, I, I think, pretty decisive influence on uh, who is reaching the top of our political system and who's not. Right. So losing an election is a really, when you're at the top of the ballot, is a really awful thing. And um, uh, Amanda Lippman uh, on this podcast used the term grief, and it's a great term to describe how you feel after an electoral loss. The women you're talking to for this program faced the additional torrent of commentary and abuse about their appearance, about their sexuality, about all kinds of aspects that are unique to politics in that uh, men don't face that same thing at all. And these are the kinds of things that a normal woman would never encounter in their lives being said about them, certainly not to them, but even about them. How are you finding that these experiences have affected these women personally? So in the interviews, we talk through the whole chronology of their life from childhood to when they first decided to run to the decision to run for leadership to being the leader and then that path when things start to fall apart and then failure, loss. 
And it is a really hard story to hear. Uh, there have been tears in a lot of these interviews uh, on both sides, me included, uh, because they've been really open about how difficult it is, not only politically, you know, to see a party that you really believe in and initiatives you believe in uh, falling apart and in large part feeling that it's because people didn't like you or because people didn't trust you or any number of other uh, reasons. But there's also the, the personal side of it. So they've talked about impacts on marriages, impacts on children, uh, their own mental health, mental health of people around them, what it's like for parents, sometimes, you know, aging parents to be watching this happening to their child. It is an incredibly difficult experience. And uh, it's one that, I, you know, I think at the end of the day, all of these women, and, and I think everybody, almost everybody who gets into politics, they get in because they're willing to make a personal sacrifice because they actually want to see the world around them be better in some way. And the ringer that they go through, uh, particularly, I think, for people who get to the top and particularly for women, it is a really sad thing to hear about. And again, that's part of what this podcast project is about, is about hearing people, uh, women who have seen the, the you know the highest but also the lowest moments of politics and hearing someone talk about that in their own words and what it's actually like uh, I think is a really powerful thing and a bit of a wake up call that's what we're that's what we're hoping to do with this project right do they regret it so uh, the, the final question at the end of every interview is knowing all of this you know if you were if you could go back and you were 20 years old again or 15 years old again would you set out on the same path and uh, all of them say of course and uh, so why is that because they know how important it is, because they know that, you know, politics is where we, if you want to affect people, if you want to make things better, politics is a really powerful place to do it. And as far as the, you know, the conversations focused on the experience of women, of course, the experience of women in politics is not going to get better unless we see more women step up. All of these women would like to see more women running. They would like to see women uh, more supported when they're running. They'd like to see more support uh, from their fellow women when they're in those. There's all kinds of things they would like to see change about politics. And that's not going to happen unless women continue to put themselves forward. So yeah, it's a tough experience. Uh, they know better than anybody how hard it can be. And yet it's still something that they uh, think is really important and that other people need to be willing to step forward and do are there things that they upon reflection think they should have done differently and present not in policy terms but in terms of presenting themselves as people um this has varied a little bit um there were some of the women have been really aware of how and this is maybe the women who are um you know 10 to 15 years ago uh, they wanted to make it seem like gender was irrelevant. You know, I am smart, I am capable, I can do this job. It does not matter that I'm a woman in this job. I'm going to show up and do it, and we're just going to pretend like there aren't the Margaret real Thatcher differences. Model. Yeah, and uh, you know, we don't hear many of the the women who've served more recently saying things like that. But I, I think, upon reflection, uh, there's been an acknowledgement from from some of them that you know maybe that wasn't ultimately the best decision, and it it they were kind of trying to fit into you know, uh, a suit that maybe didn't fit. And so, um, yeah, so I, I think in some cases the awareness and the ability to just be yourself and be authentically you, uh, politics doesn't always provide for that. And so I think a few of the women, um, you know, they've been, they've been really thoughtful in reflecting on that. The other thing, though, that's been interesting is uh, hearing them talk about each other. You know, at the beginning of this, I kind of thought there was like some secret text message group where all the women, you know, 
conversed and like you know shared about their experiences and so on. That's not necessarily the case. There's a real loneliness, I think, generally of being at the top, but certainly these women uh, experience that. And so they've been really reflective on uh, things that maybe they could have done to reach out to each other. You know, there's only a few of them who've had the same experience and uh, often for party reasons or policy reasons or whatever, they didn't they didn't have that kind of support around them from other women who've been through it. And they've been thoughtful and reflective on that that would have been helpful. And that's maybe something that they could do going forward for whoever's the 13th and the 14th and the 15th and so on. That's really interesting. Do you think politics is more misogynistic or sexist than other aspects of society? Or is this just a public illustration of what women face all the time everywhere? Ooh, that's a big question. Um, I think it's certainly a reflection of, you know, these are not problems that are unique to politics. They do extend to women everywhere. You know, patriarchy and sexism, misogyny are uh, things that unfortunately women all around the world experience all the time. So no, it's not unique to politics. I think it's the visibility of it that uh, makes it so problematic. So, you know, when there are lock her up chants or, you know, just horrific things being said on social media about women in politics, it almost gives a bit of permission space for uh you know, when people hear things like that said, it perpetuates those views. It sometimes, um, I think, makes people feel empowered to, particularly online, say things that they would never say in person. So, yeah, I think in politics, it's not necessarily worse, but it's more visible and perhaps more problematic. Do, do you think we like to pretend that we have a much, much nicer society than we actually have? <laughs> right. I mean, I think that to me, it's been really interesting to watch, for instance, Social media give people the license to say things that they would never have said before social media came along because they would have had to say it to somebody mm-hmm. um, face to face um, and uh, unlikely to do that. Or or the way Trump's election has empowered people to say things racially or sexually or otherwise that they wouldn't previously have said. There seems to be a lot of latent assholery out there <laughs> that just needs a little bit of an excuse to uh, bubble up to the surface. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, we we like to think we've come so far and we like to think, you know, and again specific to women in politics, there are a lot of accomplishments, but it it you know, when you look at the numbers of who is succeeding and who's not, it does not line up with that general sense that I think most Canadians have that we are a uh, Equal tolerant society where you know everyone has a chance to get ahead. We we haven't taken uh, I think nearly as much of an intersectional lens either in this project as we should. You know if, if this was a project on you know black women first ministers like it would be called no first chances. Like we've we've never seen many you know really important groups rise up to levels of leadership that uh, they need to and they should be able to. So you know if, even just looking at sort of representation. Um, it doesn't line up with this view that I think we have as Canadians, that we are an equal and fair society. Uh, it's a great ambition. We're certainly not there yet. Right. Uh, these interviews were conducted and these people's political careers were over a pretty wide time frame. So like Kim Campbell is literally 25 years before the 2018 election that Kathleen Wynne lost. So uh, did were there any differences that you could discern in the experiences over time? So social media is... is probably the most obvious and pronounced one where that uh, introduces a lot of negativity into campaigns and certainly and kind of a really obvious expression of sexism that, you know, prior to social media, women didn't have to deal with. But in terms of the general dynamics of how tough it can be to be the first woman in a leadership role and some of those more interpersonal um, experiences with sexism, uh, those things have been very much the same. 
So yeah, it's one of the things that we'll be do, uh, digging a bit further into, into in the interviews is to see if there are any pronounced time differences or regional differences or partisan differences. But uh, yeah, I, I, I would say my kind of initial impression as the person on the listening end of this has been how remarkably similar the experiences have been, regardless of all those differences. Really? Mm-hmm. So that's pretty discouraging. Well, <laughs> uh, yeah. You would, yeah. Have, you would have hoped something would have changed over 25 years, but... Uh, yeah. yeah. So we've been talking about the sexism uh, that these uh, people face uh, from voters. What about internally? Uh, like Kathleen Wynne had the loyalty of the of her caucus and of her cabinet um, right up to the end of her tenure, right? Some of the other people, like Alison Redford or Kim Campbell, it looked to me like the men in their parties couldn't wait to kill them. Um, and uh, uh, you know, Alison Redford seemed to be the victim of an internal takedown operation. Did you get into that kind of stuff at all? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, this is... Uh I don't want to give away too much of the individual stories. I do hope people tune into the podcast. Right. But uh, yes, when when each of the women talk about the unique circumstances of you know when their political career began to end, uh, for sure there are there are some, sometimes it's party dynamics, sometimes it's caucus dynamics, some or sometimes it's uh, you know even staff, any number of things. But yes, um, is it because there's a genuine? Do women actually? want to do politics differently? Is there a different way of doing politics that women want to do and men are resisting this? I don't know if it's so black and white. I mean, you know, just like men are not a homogenous group, women are not a homogenous group either. You know, we, I think we often say things like, you know, women like to do a more conciliatory style of politics, a bit more consensus based, uh, more open to listening to others' ideas, uh, less maybe confident and assured in the correctness of their own views. So, you know, and I think there probably are some of those patterns there, but, you know, some of these women, um, yeah, I I don't know that we could say that, you know, a woman necessarily does politics differently than a man. Sylvia Vyshevkin, who's a U of T prof, she's got a book coming out on exactly this question this summer, uh, examining, uh, and she it's titled, you know, Doing Politics Differently, question mark. Right. And so I'm keen to see what her finding is, and I suspect it's not so simple as saying, you know, yes, women do politics in this way and men do politics in this way. I think there's a lot more gray. Does anything that you have learned through this process give you any insight into what is going on right now between the prime minister and two of his most senior female former cabinet ministers? Oh my goodness. Well, in some ways it's uh, for a variety of reasons, there couldn't be a better time to be talking about women in politics. That's one obviously headline grabbing uh, scenario. The Alberta election would be the other where you see Canada's lone female first minister literally seeking a second chance as we speak. So it certainly gives people a lot of appetite for this conversation. So I think that the timing has been good. I, I, <laughs> I've got all kinds of thoughts on both of those situations, but uh, more importantly, this project is about uh, raising the question and getting people to think about it themselves. Okay. The, it, just to close off this section then, do you have any advice for aspiring female leaders? So uh, it's been really inspiring for me to hear uh, from these women about uh, even going through the toughest experiences that they did, how they continue to recognize that it's, really important that women have to be at the table, that if we want to live in a fair and more equal society, we need women to be stepping up uh, as candidates, as volunteers. Even though it's going to be painful and awful. Even though it can be painful and awful, yes. So for any, uh, you know, and I would say this for women and for men, but for women, if you do not see that the things that you care about are being 
representative, no one's speaking up on the stuff that matters to you, you have a voice and you need to speak up on it. So um, the the big takeaway for me and I hope for others who you know listen to the podcast or participate in this project in some way is that uh, we all have the ability to shape the world around us and we know that women aren't speaking up uh, as much as I think we need to see. So my best piece of advice for young women is if there's something that matters to you, uh, be willing to do it. Your voice matters and uh, and we need to make sure we're listening. Okay, so once this project is over, <clears throat> what's next for you? What are you going to be doing? Uh, well, I teach at Western, and I've uh, I traditionally focus mostly on local government. I'm teaching a few uh, more courses related to women in politics in the future, and I'm really enjoying that. I find that's uh, really rewarding. So, yeah, I'll, I'll continue teaching. I'll continue writing. Are you going to run again? Uh, if yes, yeah, I had a really wonderful experience, as I've said, and so uh, when the next election, well, I'm glad along, I could do yes, that for you. <laughs> glad I could deliver that experience for you. <laughs> yeah, it's always a question of uh, you know time and place and so on, but uh, but yeah, in, in terms of stepping forward again, I'd be uh, with the right opportunity, uh, very keen to do that. Are you interested in the Ontario Liberal Party leadership? Oh, uh, <laughs> I am. I am very interested in the leadership, uh, not necessarily as a candidate, but uh, I think you know the party has a once in a generation opportunity right now. You know, ap- after a defeat like this, it is really incumbent on us to uh, hear the message of that election and to reshape and rebuild accordingly. And so, yeah, I want to be a really active part of that process. Um, I'm really glad that we're not at the point of the leadership race yet. I think there's a, a real moment in time where we can spend our time and energy in listening and in thinking about what that message was before we get into the leadership discussion. And so, yeah, in terms of London and Southwestern Ontario, I'm very keen on being a part of that process. I'm excited that you are thinking about it. I think you'd be very, I think you'd be very, very interesting um, in that. What do you think the party should be looking for in a leader? Uh, I hope that we see uh, a lot of people step forward to run for the leadership. And more importantly, I hope we see a lot of people step forward to be a part of the leadership process in some way, whether it's putting forward ideas or supporting a candidate or getting involved in in any number of ways. Uh, Again, I think it's an opportunity for a discussion about where the party is going in the future. I think people like building things, right? It's it's fun. It's exciting. It's, you know, it's a really powerful expression of how important individuals can be in this process. So um, it's for me, it's less about, you know, one perfect individual who embodies that. It's more about this process of getting a lot of people to speak up and talk about the things that matter to them. And at the end of the day, there will be someone at the, you know, an individual who is the leader. But the process to get there is, I think, the more important part. Really? Like, what about, you know, I mean, I, I've been looking at leaders and looking at politics and thinking that politics is more and more like entertainment for people. Okay. <laughs> and therefore, they're looking for leaders that are more and more like celebrities or entertainers um, for them. And we're electing different kinds of leaders. And the kinds of criteria that we used to apply um, don't seem to be the most relevant ones anymore. Like, for instance, having thought about policy issues before, being somewhat expert or versed in the substance of what's going on, having a, um, you know, uh, Doug Ford doesn't have any of that, right? Um, and it wasn't really Justin Trudeau's calling card either. Um, so we're electing dif- different kinds of people now. But I think one of the things that's uh, in common, I, you know, we could call it entertainment or we could just call it the uh, 
a really um, powerful ability to connect with people. So someone like AOC in the States, you know, when she speaks, she doesn't really sound like a politician. You rarely hear her give uh, numbers and, you know, X millions of dollars invest in whatever. You hear her say, you know, I'm not elitist. I worked in a taco shop. She'll frame problems as, you know, kids in Flint's brains aren't developing to the level they should. She is a populist in a sense that there's always a culprit in her story. You know, it is the, you know, big oil companies or it's these companies. This is who you should be mad at. And then she has the ability to make you feel something, to feel angry or excited or empowered. And so I think we we do see a new generation of politicians coming forward where they are really good at, again, back to that, reminding people that they have a voice, they have power. And a great leader to me, uh, in, um, among a number of other things, is someone who can connect with people and remind them of that. And so I hope that we see through the Ontario uh, you know, Liberal Party leadership race and, and all across the country, I hope we see more people stepping up like that, where it's not about looking like what we've traditionally thought of as being a political leader, which tends to be a older, white, affluent, straight man. It can look like any number uh, of things, but it's someone who really understands the people that they serve and has an unbelievable gift when it comes to connecting with people. Thanks. One last question. Okay. In London, Ontario, mm-hmm. how is the carbon tax climate change fight going to go? Who's going to win that argument in London, Ontario? Oh, this is, I don't know if this is my uh, rational response or my hopeful response, but I think climate change is one of the defining issues of this generation. And the more I read about it, the more scared I get. And I don't think that we are taking it nearly seriously enough in this country, certainly now, uh, or or in this province. And so uh, I really hope that at the end of the day, uh, people keep the big picture in mind and think about, you know, multiple generations ahead and the duty that we have to this planet uh, over, you know, a couple cents at the pumps. But you're... You're but, not sure that's going to happen. <laughs> is that a wave that I'm seeing happening? Uh, no, I, you know, yeah, I think people have all kinds of opinions on that. But I, I think again, part of the duty of politicians involved in this conversation is to remind people of how high the stakes are there. I don't understand the morality of that issue in particular, right? Like, if you are, if you are um, in politics, it's normal to take different positions on things just because there's political advantage to it. So I'm not. I'm not saying that this is unique and doesn't happen, you know. So you're proposing the GST. Well, we're opposed to the GST. It's not necessarily a thoughtful position. It's a political position. But when you're talking about something that is an existential, imminent existential threat to the species, how do you say, well, you know, we're not going to do anything for ten years, but I'll get to be the prime minister for ten years on climate change? Like, I don't even understand how people take that position morally. Mm-hmm. And when you hear, you know, there's this, uh, a lot of talk of this clock ticking, the 12 years that we have to be able to, you know, stop the, uh, when it starts to feel more urgent, this is maybe a a hopeful or naive view, I I really hope that that grabs more people's attention and this starts to feel like an everyday top of the list kind of an issue because it certainly should, as you say, it it is an existential issue. Uh, It's hard to think of something that matters more than this right now, but it doesn't feel like that, right? And it doesn't, you know, when things like the carbon tax come up uh, and people are arguing about nickels and dimes, uh, I think we've really lost the plot. So I I hope that we are, (laughs) I hope that most people uh, keep that bigger picture in mind and that we see that that ultimately is what wins, so to speak, this debate. Let's end on that optimistic note. Kate, thank you so much for coming in and talking with us today. It's been really interesting and I know you're going to be onto something 
uh, equally interesting in the future, and I'd love to have you back to talk about that, whatever it is. Okay. Thank you very much, David. Appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, before you leave, where can people watch No Second Chances? Where can they catch up with No Second Chances? Yes, yeah, so No Second Chances is a project of Canada 2020. And so you can find us at nosecondchances.ca or uh, by going to the Canada 2020 website. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Thank I'd like to thank Kate Graham for joining us today. She might be somebody worth following on uh, social media. It sounds like she might have some announcements to make about herself in the future coming up. If you like this episode, perhaps give it a retweet or uh, like us on iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you listen. This was, again, produced in the Orange Lounge by the amazing Spencer Sunshine. And uh, thank you all for listening to the Hurly Burly today. What